I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Hey, everyone. And you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today we have a guest. He is a urban affairs journalist and he's created something called um, Market Urbanism Report. And I'll let him bring, kind of set that up and go into detail about what Market Urbanism Report is. But please help me welcome Scott Bayer. (laughs) Scott, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, excited to dig into this. This is a huge topic, um, so I'm interested to get your take and and kind of go back and forth on this. So let's let's start with just setting up um, what is Market Urbanism Report and uh, and sort of why you set this up. Sure. Well, the better thing would be to define what market urbanism is. Okay. And that is the mix of free market policy and urban issues. So we're looking at how classical liberal economic ideas can apply to things like housing and transportation and city administration. And market urbanism is a, is a philosophy and a movement that has uh, existed for about a decade now. And there are multiple platforms promoting it. I started Market Urbanism Report several years ago to really scale the idea and to bring more publicity to it. So kind of in the, th- in the way that we think of new urbanism as being a mainstream concept that many people know about, 
Um, I kind of wanted to do the same with market urbanism. And so this, this report that I've started is, uh, is kind of in the growth process, but I'm trying to turn it into a major think tank that has institutional funding and full-time employees and things like that. And so we're kind of in the early stages. We're getting there, and I actually have several staffers now, but um, we're kind of in the early stages of really scaling the market urbanism idea. And you have uh, podcasts, and are you doing any other content to to release for this uh, concept? We're we do. We have a weekly article. We have we did have a monthly podcast that is is temporarily on hold because we used to do it live and in person, but coronavirus kind of screwed that up. <laughs> um, and uh, I think more, actually more to the point is a number of really active social media threads, uh, a combined social media following of over 50,000. And um, the main one being the Market Urbanism Report Facebook group, which uh, is kind of an active community that talks about urban ideas and pulls a lot of people around the country and around the world. So um, going back to market urbanism, it's it's basically, from what I understand, it's the theory to to lean more on the private sector to approach urbanism and the development of our cities, basically, right? It is. I would, if I were to define market urbanism more in depth, I'd say it's it's really two different theories. So. On one hand, it's a, it is a philosophical theory that is effectively asking how would cities function as fully private entities? So if the, housing, if the housing were laid out rather than through urban planning, if it were laid out based on, on the, the natural um, interaction between consumers and developers, if transportation grids were laid out by private companies, if the public administration model within cities were actually a private administration model. So in other words, how would a fully private city function? Huh. And the reason that I call that a theory is because it's almost non-existent around the world. Like you're not going to go to any country and, and find any big mainstream city that is privately run. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a philosophical inquiry into how it could work. But on the other hand, market urbanism is a set of of policy ideas that are more pragmatic and politically likely and might not be like a fully libertarian vision per se, but they're kind of market oriented and they're pushing in that direction, but they can be used in an existing political context. So an example I might give is a market urbanism pragmatist would look at existing zoning and say, this zoning is really distorted and, and is leading to all kinds of bad outcomes. And we might propose a different kind of zoning that is more liberalized and allows more, um, more private sector activity and view and, and frame that as an alternative to what exists now. Mm -hmm. And, and on the policy front, it's the idea of breaking down a lot of the, the red tape and, um, restrictions that that governments have in place right now right it's um, more determined by the concept is to be more determined by the private sector and sort of creating their own rules mm -hmm. yeah I, w I would say it market urbanism really applies to uh 
two different things above all, and that's housing and transportation. Mm-hmm. And I think if I were to break it down as like, if I were to do a paragraph to say what specifically the vision is for housing and transportation, it's to, it's to take, um, we're viewing the government control of, of both those entities. And by housing, I mean the restrictive zoning codes that take place. And by transportation, I mean sort of the socialized model we have for transfer, transportation provision. We're looking at that and saying that has not created particularly good cities in the United States. Like basically the reason, the reason we have the New Yorks and San Francisco's was because they were built at a time before the government really got involved mm-hmm. in, in planning cities. And then along came zoning and subsidies for suburbia and um, imminent domain, use of imminent domain to build a lot of roads. And it kind of like distorted the, the natural growth of the way cities were supposed to happen. And so th- I think in a lot of ways, market urbanism, when it's being attacked, it's called things like ne- neoliberalism and capitalism. But I view it more as by restoring markets into city planning, it's really bringing things back to the way they were um, in a more organic, bottom-up urban growth process that does not so much favor the automobile and sort of the mistakes that we've made in urban planning in the last century. Mm-hmm. So this is really fascinating to me because um, I agree and disagree at the same time. <laughs> um, so when you look back in history on, on the zoning front, a lot of it came in for protections and, and we had issues like in New York, for example, we ended up with during the skyscraper race, we ended up with all these giant buildings that basically created this cavernous shadowy streets and you couldn't see the sun. So they ended up creating zoning rules to step back these buildings as they got higher and things like that. Um, And then I do have a problem with zoning on the suburbia front because it created a lot of class issues and things like that. So, um, and I also would, agree that our cities are way outdated uh as everybody knows government is completely bloated more often than not and they don't have a time to have the time to look back into their zoning laws and make common sense changes to those so maybe i would propose maybe not necessarily that it's a free run of private sector um but maybe it's an engagement and partnership where private sector comes in and sort of advises cities on changes that can be implemented and should be implemented for whatever reasons, you know, prepare reports and studies. Um, Cause I, I think, and I, I'm sure as you're going to, you've suggested already is that the problem with business is that you always have to have profits and more more often than not businesses lean towards the profit margin making decisions so that would be my concern with you know approaching the development of a city with that mindset yeah well i think that um the first thing i'd say to the idea that that manhattan zoning zoning came about in manhattan because it was create because there were too many skyscrapers being built creating caverns yeah, I would I would look at uh, the skyscrapers of Manhattan as being a fundamentally good development model. Um, if you're looking at, say, the tax revenue generation per parcel, um, or the business the the economic productivity per parcel, 
Manhattan is better than anything in the United States. Um, in fact, I think, I think the overall land value of Manhattan is, is similar to, to the whole GDP of Canada or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm looking at the, at the Manhattans and the San Francisco's and the, and the Miami's because Miami has a lot of, a lot, a lot of high rise construction mm-hmm. as being a fundamentally good urban model. Mm-hmm. And so if uh, people don't like it personally, they can always move to different areas. Like I think that, I think that Metro New York city has a lot of different built styles that will appeal to a lot of people like Brooklyn is, is obviously a lot more hot low rise. And then Queens is kind of a mix of suburbia and urbanism. And you've got a lot of satellite suburbs like Newark and Greenwich, Connecticut that are kind of doing their own development style. And so I think as a, as a market person, I would look at it and say, we should generally be liberalizing development because it's going to lead to a lot of different styles that appeal to a lot of different people. And if a person does not like a specific style, they can always relocate or choose a different type of city that better fits their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Man, this is such an interesting topic though, because it's really, it really has so it's, it's interesting to listen to, Demetrius's take because just because off you know line conversations you and I have had like I could see it being a total you know battle um, and this might throw you for a loop a little bit privatizing cities probably freaks me out a little bit actually even though I would tend to be a little bit more capitalistic in those types of things what? I know right so <laughs> um, so this is this is a highly unique and super interesting topic because I would tend to lean very highly towards being more capitalistic um, and saying, yeah, let, you know, let them run it. They're going to do it from a profit maximization standpoint, whatever the market demands is what they're going to try and provide, you know, all those types of things. So there's a lot of good that goes along with that. But I also believe there has to be some styming of, you know, um, how, how it all gets done because it's, oh gosh, it's interesting. I mean, it's really, really an interesting topic because I, I think the government on its own is not very good at it. I think if you went, you know, so it's maybe to your point, Demetrius, of what you're offering, between the two of them, there's got to be some kind of middle point or middle ground, maybe, maybe leaning more towards the privatized portion of it. Um, but it's, it's such an extreme idea, you know what I mean? Which I love, but it's, um, it's interesting. It's really, really interesting because then you mix it with the sociology of what's going on right now. And everybody feels like they have to have, it's their right to be able to be in a certain area. You know what I mean? So you can't, build these types of things and then tell me that I have to go somewhere else to live or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just, God, that's interesting. I know that sounds really broken how my mind's thinking about all that right now, because <laughs> it totally is. It's jumping all around. Um, well, I think a lot of the concerns that I get when I, I talk about my free market vision is people are worried about externalities, which I think is what Demetrius was getting at there, which is if, if we're going to let the private sector come in and, and profit maximize and build right. whatever they want, what are the, what, what impact does that have on the people around? Right. And aesthetics is only one of the things, I mean, you're, you're talking about things like traffic and noise and, you know, shade, like, like blocking the sun and somebody has a a vegetable garden in their yard and suddenly a tower goes up next to it. And now they can't have a vegetable garden anymore because the sun is blocked. So things like that. And, um, I'm writing a book about market urbanism that is going to have a model zoning code that tries to address some of those things. And so the, the gist of this, of this model zoning code, which would be very different than other ones that exist, is it does not so much police what is going on a given parcel. 
it is policing and potentially charging for the externalities that the parcel creates. So if you were, even if you were to build a skyscraper, the, the zoning code is going to address things like um, what kind of light pollution is that skyscraper creating? What kind of uh, runoff is, is that skyscraper creating? Or things like noise, traffic, uh, blocking the sun, creating shadows, et cetera. And I think that would be a good way to, that would, that would having a, a rule system like that would actually encourage the developer to still build what they're building, but to build it in a way that reduces the externalities that might exist from the project and, and maybe redesign it in ways that reduces the impacts. Whereas I think in a lot of cases, the current zoning simply says, no, the skyscraper can't be built. No, the corner store can't be built. Only this thing can be built. Uh, the market urbanism model zoning is designed to make things more flexible. Mm -hmm. Now, where where do you fall on, you know, we talked about, it's about kind of removing some of the red tape. And here in California, one of the big things is environmental protections. Where mm -hmm. do you fall with the environmental protections and market urbanism? Yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed to environmental protections. I mean, I think that's a lot of where I'm getting at with uh, when a development is getting built that we need, we do need to factor for things like runoff and whether or not contaminated soil is being disrupted, mm -hmm. things like that. But uh, I think in California specifically, and I'm thinking of policies like CEQA, mm -hmm. uh, it, it seems like the environmentalism and the environmental movement out there really gets distorted to, um, to pursue ulterior aims that don't have anything to do with the environment. And I've written a number of things about that. It's like the, for example, the Sierra club is the local Sierra club chapters are notorious for blocking dense development in San Francisco and LA that will not realistically have any environmental impacts, but what it, it really does by blocking those sort of projects is it just sends people out into sprawling areas and, and that's worse for the environment. So yeah, environmentalism in theory, it makes a lot of sense. It seems like in practice though, it's uh, it's not always pursuing environmental aims. That was a really nice way of stating that, by the way, <laughs> it's a lot of good sidestep in there. That was good. No, I, I, I definitely, and I do want to emphasize this, I definitely think there's a socioeconomic element where environmentalism has been weaponized uh, to protect and prevent dense communities being developed uh, where housing is necessary and we need to diversify um, the, the community that is there. Um, so there's definitely been that. Um, so, I mean, I think it, I think it gets back to my point. It sounds like, like you agree that there needs to be some sort of protections and guidelines to how this is enacted. Um, but what we have right now is potentially outdated and just not applicable to how we perceive our country and want to run our country. Well, um, is, okay. is that, is that a fair assessment? And if I can, if I can toss in real quick too, like when you look at just basic communities that are being developed, you know, in cities and stuff like that, I mean, how many times do you hear a builder saying it's like, they want things that the price point won't provide, you know what I mean? Like we can't sit with all these things that you guys want to add and how you want to do this and everything else. Like there's no way that 
the, the, the consumer can sustain that price point around here where it drives those costs. So I always think there is a bit of an out of whack situation currently with what we're dealing with because the government side of it, you know, whether it's city or however that works in that particular area just wants what they want, but have no responsibility for cost and, you know, selling that product and getting their investment out. I mean, you see that in a real simple localized idea consistently, you know? Yeah. I would say that when you're, when we're talking about what should the larger role of regulation play in cities and in society, whether or not we're talking about environmental regulations or just everyday zoning, I think they, they do often start with good intentions. Like if you were to look at some early rationales for zoning, some of it was, was, was flat out bad intentions. I mean, things like separating the races and classes, mm-hmm. but some early zoning was justified as like, oh, this is how we're going to separate, you know, residential areas from noxious industrial areas. And so it, there was a certain public health rationale to early zoning. Yeah. But if you look at zoning in 2020, it has metastasized to police everything from how much parking you have to have to the setback from the street to what, I mean, some, some cities even legislate like what kind of materials have to go on a building or how big the windows have to be, what the roof pitch has to be. It's sort of like things that don't really make any sense. And I think what's really going on there is that regulations, even when they're written for good intentions end up getting captured by entrenched interests who use and manipulate them in ways to, to serve their own benefit. So, I mean, if, if you were to look at something like the homeowner block in any city uses the zoning regulations to block development and think up all these spurious requirements and that increases the value of their own homes and kind of like creates an artificial shortage that prevents other people from being able to build housing and, and other people from getting housed. So it's kind of like, I view that as being kind of the nature of regulations. Yeah. So we're up against it already, uh, Scott. Um, But I want to emphasize that you were a journalist for Forbes and you've gone on um, to write. uh, You're currently writing for which platform? I'm currently writing. I'm a policy fellow for the Independent Institute, specifically a, a publication they have called Catalyst that's designed to reach a more millennial audience. And I write for housingonline.com, which focuses on affordable housing policy in the US. And I write for Governing Magazine, which is uh, a magazine that is um, designed to improve government performance and really speak to public officials around the country about how their governments can become more efficient. Great. Yeah, this is a really fascinating topic. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, people know where they can find you. Uh, is there anywhere, social media or, um, and, and you're, you want to give a shout out to your, your actual website for Market Urbanism? Sure. My website is marketurbanismreport.com. It's kind of like a place you can go to learn about urban policy reform in the United States from a free market perspective. And we have a number of social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. But if you, if you really have to go to one, I would suggest the Market Urbanism Report Facebook group. It's a 10K following group that, uh, and we have pretty rabid conversations on there every day about urban issues. 
Great. Um, yeah, really fascinating topic. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Jason, thanks for doing this again. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And uh, we just had an episode come out um, Wednesday, which was Designing for Childhood with Alexandra Lang. Uh, she was previously with Curbed and a number of other places. Uh, so make sure to check that out. Make sure to follow Scott. Um, and thank you for listening. We'll talk soon. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.